You're listening to Scaling Up Services, where we speak with entrepreneurs, authors, business experts, and thought leaders to give you the knowledge and insights you need to scale your service-based business faster and easier. And now, here is your host, business coach, Bruce Eckfeld. Welcome, everyone. This is the Scaling Up Services podcast. I'm Bruce Eckfeld. I'm your host. Today, we have a very special guest, friend, colleague, fellow EOer, Matthew Weiss, and we're going to talk a little bit about the business he started a couple of years ago, a few years ago, and how he grew it and how he successfully got himself out of the day-to-day so he could focus more on some of the legacy work he does. We're going to hear a little bit about that. But uh, Matt, thank you for being on the program. My pleasure. So why don't we start? I like to have guests kind of start with a little bit of the background. Uh, Let's talk about your business, how you've kind of started, sort of the early stages. How do you get into it and uh, what did it do? What problems did it solve for what people? Sure. So I graduated law school and worked at a court for two years and then a big law firm for another two years. And during that second year at that big law firm, a friend of mine from law school who was out on his own kept calling me and asking me to, you know, join him. And he was looking for a partner and looking for synergies that we had. He was a good rainmaker and I was good uh, at technically getting the work done and building a practice. And so after four or five calls and thinking about it, I realized that this big law firm after six, seven years would spit me out, replace me by someone cheaper. And uh, it would be difficult for me to get a partnership at this firm because they were looking for big clients, villages, towns, public companies. And those are very difficult to, you know, as a young 27-year-old, try to get to join, you know, your firm. So I gave my notice. We opened up shop and we had not much business, but there was one lawyer who was doing a fair amount of criminal work and traffic work. And because the criminal cases were higher fees, we were covering his traffic work for him. So we would literally be in traffic court on our feet all day covering his cases. But over time, we were starting to develop our own reputation and our own clientele because when you're in court and someone walks in and they're anxious, they're nervous, they need help, they see someone dressed like a lawyer, they approach you and they say, you know, are you a lawyer? I need some help. And so it got to a point where we were building up a fair amount of cases. I was giving out more business cards a month than I have in my life. Literally, I would go through a box of business cards a month, and I've wow. never since those days given out so many business cards because, you know, if someone would meet you, you'd do their case. If you won or you got them a, a decent result, they would you would give them 10 or 20 cards and they would give it to their friends, right? And so we were still helping that other attorney, but now we're doing our work and doing this other lawyer's work. And then at some point it became like, yeah, we'll help you because we had so much more of it because we were there every day building this brand and reputation. Yeah. And over time, I realized that I didn't want to be on my feet doing that every day, day to day, grunting it out because it's it's hard work, right? And you know, for 20, 30 years of being doing that would be difficult. Mm-hmm. And what I did see is that there were four or five other lawyers at pretty much every one of the New York City traffic courts that were doing the same thing where they were in court regularly. And so I realized, well, since they're there anyway, they're happy for my business. Why don't I just start a firm where I could market and promote, advertise, uh, yellow book ads, things like that, and get the business and then use them as the people that deliver the service. And so these are attorneys that were in court anyway, that were happy for my business. It takes about five minutes to handle one case. 
And if I would give them sometimes five, six, 10 cases in a day, and it only took them five minutes per case. If they resolved it, some cases were just rescheduled for whatever reason. So a lot of times I would give them 10 cases, they but they would only have to finish three or four. Yeah. So it really wasn't a lot of time commitment on their part. And so I saw that I could pay them you know, a lot less than I could charge my clients. So I saw the room for a market here. Yeah. And so the key, I guess, was creating a brand that people would find me before they walked into court. And so we built that over time. And as you mentioned, we're both members of the entrepreneurs organization, EO. And through joining EO, among other things, I learned that just because you're a lawyer doesn't mean you have to follow what other lawyers do. Yeah. So we created a logo and a tagline and we branded ourselves within the legal requirements for lawyer advertising and really became and are known for fighting traffic tickets. Our phrase that we kind of own in the market is traffic ticket or New York traffic ticket. Mm -hmm. And having done it since 1991 till now, you know, we've really built a great following. And uh, in the early stages, it was Yellow Book ads, yeah. which some people may remember. <laughs> some people may not. <laughs> exactly. Uh, we just. We did a billboard. We did a lot of radio ads. We had a great, and we still do have a great toll-free number, 1-888-RED-LIGHT. Mm. And then this amazing invention came along that just changed everything called the World Wide Web mm -hmm. and focused a lot of effort on that because it was much more efficient for us to put out in the world that this is what we do for people that are looking for us than to have a radio ad and hope that someone who's listening has a ticket, yeah. wants a lawyer, will remember our number and actually follow up and call us, which was more like a needle in a haystack. So it was a push versus a pull kind of thing, right? So yeah. I, I doubled down and focused a lot of effort on that. And I still focus a lot of effort on my online marketing and, <laughs> and now it, social media came about and that as well. Yeah. And so through the years, we just continue to build that and focus on it and always are working to keep our organic levels as high as we can for, for natural search. Yeah. And we did pay-per-click for a while, but our organic results were better than the pay-per-click. And we were getting such good organic results about five years ago that we stopped doing pay-per-click. Yeah. Because the leads were better and they were free. Yeah. So And so what I do is I focus my money on vendors that help with that organic search and help improve you know, our standing, making sure that we are compliant with what Google and other search engines are looking for. And uh, and then, of course, we have a tremendous amount of word of mouth, you yeah. know, we're customers, family, friends, things like that. You know, that's kind of the business model. And yeah, uh, it doesn't there's, require me to be there day to day. There's some great some of the great pieces I want to pull out of there, because I think that a, a lot of people in particularly in kind of professional services, but services in general, kind of get stuck on or, or they they will hit a kind of a ceiling unless they figure out how to kind of change their business model. The one is figuring out how to part of the process do you want to specialize in. So in this case, it was really for you, it was how do I generate demand and how do I map it to the resources out there? So rather than actually being the lawyer in the courthouse fighting the case, it's, hey, I can find these leads. I can find people that need legal services and I know that there's a market I can or I I've been able to identify and communicate with a market of people who can provide the service and I'm basically matchmaker, right? So how can I leverage and just get really good at that, figure out 
how do I find the right lawyers? How do I find, you know, communicate them, with them efficiently? How do I create the demand? And then how do I map those things up? I mean, because that's that's a really, that, that's a specific business model. It's a specific position to take in the business that I think a lot of professional services or services in general think, well, I have to be the one actually doing the work. And I think if you look at where the opportunity is and where's the inefficiency in the market. The other piece that I love um, is that idea of owning words or owning phrases. And it's something we talk about in the strategy side is, is the, the words that you own. But figure out like what, what is the vocabulary? What is, how do customers think about the problem that they have? And being able to kind of capture those phrases and then own it not only from a kind of a search term point of view, but really from a market point of view. Like you're known as that person in the industry. If you have any, if you have a problem like this, you are the person to go to. And I think a lot of services firms, you know, end up kind of chasing money. You know, it's like, well, I'll do anything for anybody, you know, and they, they, they fight this idea of specialization. But in fact, if the faster you want to scale, the more you need to focus, the more you need to specialize in the stuff. Do, do you think how, did you have times where there it was tempting for you to, you know, branch off into other areas or to expand your services? Tell me a little bit about how religious were you able to be about that focus over the growth of the company? So that's a great question. And I spent a lot of my time in the early years doing other type of work as well. So when I was in a traffic court, I would be writing contracts. I would be handling litigation matters, some criminal work, real estate work. I'm pretty versatile and could competently handle a lot of that work. But over time, I realized that the traffic business was such a good business that I could scale, that has good margins, that I needed to focus on that. And there was this ego element to get past, right, mm. being, being just a traffic lawyer. But over time, I got past it, and honestly, I would have scaled faster if I had focused on traffic from the outset. But it was always there. There was always a need for people to help, you know, needing help with their traffic tickets. And so, you know, um, I, I can't say that we generated demand because I think the demand was there. Uh -huh. uh, but what our model is, we will handle all aspects of the case in-house mm -hmm. through myself or one of my in-house lawyers or paralegals except uh, with one court we but beyond that one court then we use of counsel attorneys who are associated with our firm uh, and who we obviously vet and oversee and supervise but our firm does some of the legal work so we will enter a not guilty plea mm -hmm. we will get a date we make sure that the lawyer has we get we gather the paperwork that's needed any evidence we make sure that the lawyer has it we get, assign the lawyer and then once the case is resolved, then we report it to the client. When there's a uh, plea bargain, if in some courts we can work out deals, you know, we make sure that that plea is reasonable and then we get the client's permission. So a lot of that is done in-house. Mm -hmm. But the thing that's done by of counsel attorneys, which outside the legal world you might call subcontractors, mm -hmm. is the actual appearance of court. Yeah. So we reach that balance of still being a law firm, not solely buying or uh, creating and selling leads, which is uh -huh. not what we're doing. So we, we are able to effectively deliver the service, comport with the legal requirements yeah. that lawyers have, yet exploit a need in the market and and uh, and uh, be able to make a living doing so. Yeah. I'm curious how like one of the challenges I typically find, particularly on kind of you know these these kind of service based businesses, as as you start to scale, like how do you maintain quality? How do you maintain process? Like what are some of the things that you've done that you think have helped you 
with the, you know, as you kind of turn up the volume of the work that you're doing, that you're, you're maintaining the quality in the process and you're making sure that, that you're still delivering effectively. One really big thing we did, which really helped us grow. And it's, I scratched my head why we didn't do it before we made the change, <laughs> but it used to be when someone would call and hire us, then that person that entertained that call would actually handle the case from beginning to end. And at some point we realized that that wasn't working well. And so we created different positions, almost like departments, if you will. Mm-hmm. So now we have, um, a couple of people that handle inbound calls mm-hmm. and explain what we can do in the service. And of course, often I end up speaking to many of those people as well, but ultimately they hire us. And once we're hired and the paperwork is signed, then it gets passed off to one of two other people who actually will follow that case and shepherd it through the process. And then we have a final person that handles fines and things like that. So by looking at the workflow and creating specialists, if you will, or mm-hmm. focused responsibilities that really kind of allowed the, the water to flow a lot quicker kind of like a kinked hose when you're out in the garden we unkinked the hose by changing yeah. how the roles on the bus were assigned yeah any insights in terms of kind of the communication and keeping people you know making sure everyone knows what they're doing at different times you know i just i see kind of Anytime you kind of start doing department stuff, it's like you create these handoffs, right? So how do you manage kind of these handoffs as it goes from stage one to stage two to stage three? So we have, in our case, we have black and white pretty clear triggers, right? So once the person hires us and signs the paperwork and they're in the system, then it gets handed off to one or two people depending on where in New York State, because we our law firm covers all tickets throughout New York State. Mm-hmm. So it goes to one of two people based on that. So it's a, it's a black and white trigger. There's no gray area there, right? Yeah. Then from there, once the case is resolved, then it goes to someone else. So again, we got the result. We know there's a fine due and then someone who has to handle that and making sure that that fine gets paid. Yeah. So we have, I guess the answer is clear black and white, you know, not milestones in the process. Yeah. And under, you have some kind of underlying technology to this. Is this something that you bought? Is this something you built? What was the... Yeah, we built a system. I originally started with Salesforce, and we were trying to use that for our infrastructure. And unfortunately, I was conceding too many things. You know that I wanted the system to do that it couldn't. And I about seventy thousand into it, and I said, uh, not working. And I had to start all over again with a cloud-based system that uses open source. And um, it's custom to us. And what our system does is it does the billing, it does the calendaring, it does assigning tasks, and people can check off tasks that are done. So basically, it allows us to contact management. It basically allows us to run our entire law firm from that one location. The only thing that, the only other software we use separate and apart is QuickBooks for our business. Yeah. But handles all the finances for the client and and keeping track of payments and fines and, and monies and, and things like that. Yeah. Uh, and, and I think, unfortunately, your story of spending a lot of money on a package to then have to build it yourself is not an uncommon one. <laughs> the amount of money will vary how long it took somebody to kind of figure it out. But, you know, I think that whole kind of buy versus build decision is it's a tough one. And it ends up being very kind of any heuristics or guidelines that you would suggest to people about, you know, looking at that buy versus build decision that you think you would have maybe done differently? Well, the, big thing, the big eye opener that people who, and myself included, don't realize when they're doing a project of that nature, a custom project, is that it's a tremendous amount of time commitment 
on you or your firm's part, your company's part. Just because you're paying someone and, and have hired them and paying them a lot of money to build the system doesn't mean that you can just, you know, wipe your hands and, and get this magic result, you know, in 90 days or six months later. It's a lot of meetings and give and take and reviewing and back and forth. They don't know your business like you do. And you can tell them, but until you see their wireframes and, and then their their prototypes, it's a lot of work on your part to get it done. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's the the dollar number of the check that you write to them in terms of the cost of the software can sometimes be less than what it ends up costing you in terms of opportunity cost of time, particularly when you're dealing with fairly highly paid professionals that have to get the knowledge out of their head into the system. So, yeah, I think budgeting that is important. Yeah, and another thing that we did, which is unique, and because of the time commitment, I seriously doubt any of my competitors will ever do this. We created a, a three tools that are free to use. On, they're web app, mm-hmm. web applications, which one's a ticket calculator, one's a ticket analyzer, and one's a ticket strategizer. So the calculator will tell you how many points your ticket carries. Mm-hmm. The analyzer will t- make a recommendation should you fight it and why. And then the strategizer will explain how to fight your ticket based on the court. And they're robust tools. These are not simple tools that get you to call up to get more information, they essentially do every single thing that I would do or any other person analyzing the situation with the knowledge that I have would do. So for instance, if you have a license from Missouri and you get a ticket in New York, you're going to want to know what's the interplay. How does that affect me in Missouri? And our system will tell you that. If you have a restricted license, we'll tell you the effect of this particular ticket on your restricted license. So there's a series of questions, but it's a simple three-step process. And that took, I can't even tell you how many (laughs) hours and hours of logic and programming to, to perfect. And we, of course, had to get it tested and and, um, yeah. you know, it was a huge commitment on our part, but it gives us a strategic advantage or competitive advantage because my competitors don't offer that. Yeah. And what it does uh, is it really is a white paper on steroids, right? Anyone uh, who knows interesting. about marketing, right? Anyone yeah. who knows about marketing knows give something away of value, something that people would want to give their email address away for, mm-hmm. and you'll get whatever it is, 10 tips or something like that. Yeah. And so what we're doing is we're giving away valuable information for your email address, but by the same token, because we're analyzing your ticket, we now know that you have a queen stop sign ticket scheduled for July 12th. Yeah. So not only do we have your email address, but we have your information, and now we're able to drip on you in a customized way yeah. some full information about your case beyond the three things that tools I already described. We might describe, tell you where to uh, how to where how to dress or where to mm-hmm. park and all specialized to that particular court. And again, being helpful and being top of mind. So it becomes this amazing tool to provide a customized drip campaign. Yeah. And, and I think full disclosure, I think I used you for a stop sign violation in Queens. So <laughs> that was probably my case. Um, <laughs> Um, and so, uh, and I think that's interesting because I think a lot of people would shy, or at least some people would shy away from providing that much help. I mean, you're, at some level, you're you're giving away a lot of what you do in this tool. Like, what was the justification for putting that kind of value or that kind of capability, uh, you know, out into the world? Yeah, I actually learned that from Seth Godin, the great marketing mm, yeah. guru. And he once said at a session I was at, he says he gives everything away. His blog is free. His content is free. He gives it all. He, he writes these books that you basically can get his content for the price of a book. He uh-huh. gives it all away. But 
if you want him to show up and do a keynote at, his, at a conference or an event, that's when you're going to pay. You're going to pay very handsomely because he gets very, you know, substantial fees. Yeah. And yeah. I felt the same way. Like I can give it away. I'm happy to give it away. You'll never be able to fight the case as well as me, even if I tell you the process and how we do it. And by the way, no one wants to spend the time to do it. Yeah. You know, it's a commitment. And so our fees are so reasonable for a lawyer, you know, someone who's licensed and went to law school and delivering a legal service and for the time that we put into a case that we could provide given that we're doing volume and we have these economies of scale that I can share all that and still most people are happily going to hire me anyway. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and, and I think I think that is a that's a that's a fairly uh, evolved <laughs> way of thinking about it. I think a lot of people end up kind of with this kind of more scarcity mindset about doing stuff like that. But yes, giving information out there, giving the capabilities, it actually becomes a great filtering tool, right? Like the, the people that really are going to go through it and fight it themselves probably are not you know customers for you. They're not prospects for you, right? The, the right. people that are going to try and then halfway through say, oh, this I should just hire them, you know, and it's a great way to kind of actually filter those folks out. Yeah, and the more they know, the more they realize, you know, this is something that they really don't want to do and that's more complicated than they thought. And, 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 you know, the thing about a traffic ticket, unlike other purchases, is they're very emotional. People are angry. They're scared. <laughs> yeah. You know, there's different severe, stressful. People get different emotions from traffic tickets. Yeah. And so as a result, you know, they, they often will rely on a professional to help them deal with it because they just want it off their plate. You know, they feel like they, they have a better chance to win. Mm -hmm. No, all they, true. Good. So you've built this company, you've built these systems, you've built uh, the marketing engine, the brand recognition. You know, I think one of the key things is around scaling businesses is, you know, once you're successful scaling, what do you do? And it's actually, it's oftentimes a question we ask in the beginning, which is, well, say you're successful in scaling it, you know, why? Like, what do you want to do with it? And I, uh, I think you've particularly done a phenomenal job of really using the business as a tool, as a vehicle, no pun intended, to get to this kind of bigger purpose, this bigger impact you want to have. Tell us a little bit about how, um, I guess, when you started to think about the bigger picture, when you thought about what kind of impact you want to make on your community, on society, on the world – and how that played into your kind of business planning process. Sure. So I actually created the time for so that when the opportunity arose, I would be able to take advantage of it. Didn't know what, when, how. But at some point, I realized that I didn't want to be working eight hours a day doing the operations of the law firm and being in that business. And it's not because I didn't like the business. It's just I've done it. It wasn't challenging. And I also felt that I could do other things that would be interesting to me. And so I had this vision, well, how can I get myself out of the business to the, but still run it effectively. So, so I just slowly figured out, all right, what do I do every day? What are my responsibilities? And I kind of just made a list of what I do. And so then I said, okay, well, what can I stop doing? What can I abdicate? And so I mentioned earlier, we abdicated doing real estate and commercial work. So we advocated certain work and that freed up time for me. Right. And uh, it took a little bit of time because I had to get rid of some cases that were pending. But that was the first process. Then, OK, so things that I was going to advocate, what can I automate? What can I 
create a system that no people need to touch that are part of my responsibility. So my responsibility is to get the phone ring. That's one of my responsibilities. And so being responsive to emails that come in from our website as quickly as possible in a customized manner is important. So I actually created a system that allows for automated emails to be sent, but they're customized to the court and the charge, the offense that someone has. So now that's something that I had a responsibility for that I don't anymore because it's now automated, mm -hmm. right? And then the third leg of the stool was delegate, all right? So what are the things that I'm doing that I could give to someone else to handle? Again, freeing up my time. And a uh, big one for me was sales. I felt like no one in my office could sell as well as yeah. I the best salesperson. But then I had this light bulb moment and I realized that if I could have someone that's 80% as good as me, then that's good enough. Mm, interesting. Because while 80% of me will not close as many people and certainly there'll be less income coming in, it frees up hours of my life, yeah. hours of my life that I'll never get back. That's the most precious resource we have is time on this earth. And no one knows how much you have. So if you could free up time in your life and uh, be able to do things that you love, that make you happy, you know, why not? So it's a process of abdicating, automating and delegating. And so through that process, I freed up enough of my time. Now, I still work on my firm. I still do um, things that need to be done. Mm -hmm. But it's not the same commitment of yeah. time that I previously worked. And so along the way, I volunteered for not-for-profits, including entrepreneurs' organization, as you know, and um, I've done uh, other things with you know with my time. But uh, the one I'm particularly proud about is uh, started with a lunch with my banker, and I went to lunch with my big banker Jeff Crowther, and he told me a story about his son Wells. Wells passed away on 9/11, and obviously their family was devastated, and and he was a great kid. If if, if you uh, heard more about him you, you appreciate it but you know he's a captain of his uh, hockey team and he always looked out for others first and this family was utterly devastated and eight months later the family was learned about his heroics and it's all connected to this red bandana yeah. and he was an incredible hero on 9-11 and i just thought it was one of the most incredible stories i'd ever heard i thought everyone needed to hear that story and then I said to myself, you need to share that story with everybody. So while I never had an experience in making a film, I never had a bucket list to make a film, I never took a class in filmmaking, I decided that I was going to make a film about this story. And yeah. so while there are filmmakers that look for stories, this was a story that I found a filmmaker. Yeah. And because I had set up my business in a way that allowed me to have some free time, I was able to take my advantage of that opportunity. And after six years, completed a documentary film about Wells. It won an award at an international film festival. It was released from coast to coast in theaters, which is, you know, most documentaries don't get released theatrically. Yeah. And it's currently on iTunes and Amazon. It's called Man in Red Bandana. I'm very proud of it. And the family loved it. You know, Allison and Jeff in particular, the parents. And obviously they were the most important critics that I only, you know, that I cared about. Yeah. And I felt that by sharing that story, hopefully it'll encourage other people to be better people and to inspire them to do great things and think of others first. I think there's a lot of me, me in this world. And, and if we could all be a little less selfish and a little more selfless, mm -hmm. this world is an incredible place. And I'm hoping sharing Wells' story and even my story in making this film will encourage people to do things that 
are in that vein. Yeah. So, and and I'll make sure that the links to the uh, to the film and to um, the information on the film are in the show notes and uh, next to the videos and stuff. And I think the the interesting piece, and you know, first of all, kudos. I've seen the film. I think at least twice now. Very touching. It's it's fascinating to hear your story about how it was created and your work with the family and and really just kind of the the reveals of how you kind of learned about it and kind of discovered more information as you went and the kind of the use of the networks and kind of how not only did the business give you kind of the time and the kind of resources to do it, but really the community and the relationships and the connections to actually make this stuff happen. The interesting thing about the whole process for me is that it wasn't, I was in my business, I had a very clear sense of this new purpose that I wanted to do and then figured out how to get myself out of it. You consciously chose to say, hey, look, I'm not sure what it is yet, but I know there's something else that I need to do, you know, in this world to serve. And I can't do it if I'm neck deep in my day-to-day business and actually taking, make, you know, having the discipline and the foresight to actually get yourself out of it and then experiment and kind of, you know, be out there and put yourself, you know, into the world to make that opportunity happen is I think a phenomenal story. And I think anyone who's caught up in business and it's an easy thing to get caught up in, right? Like I'm the next million dollars in revenue, the next acquisition, the next geography that I want to roll out to. It's very easy to just kind of get wrapped up in growth for growth's sakes rather than growth for getting you to some place where you can actually shift, kind of shift the focus or shift the way in which you're going to have impact in the world. So, you know, kudos to you in, in terms of. Yeah, I would um, say your business is for your life. Your life should not be your business. And unless you're really passionate about doing what you do, you know, then figure it out. And this is not happen overnight. You know, that process of automating, delegating, abdicating did not happen overnight. It happened over time and with effort. And I certainly needed to build a volume of business. We had to grow sales in order to accomplish my vision. But the first thing and the most important thing is have that vision, right? Yeah. If you get to an Uber tonight, you tell the cab driver where you want to go, right? And then they, he or she will figure out the route to get you there. Mm-hmm. But if you don't have a destination, you're never going to figure out the route. So yeah. I had the destination of freeing up that time, and then I figured out the route to get there. Yeah, that's great. And and uh, I hear you're working on another film now too. What's the? Tell us a little bit about this next one. Yeah, so it's called Vault. The single best part of being involved with the second film was that I never thought I'd be involved with the second film. <laughs> Famous last words, yeah. <laughs> well, I made the first film with no intentions yeah. to make another movie. It was purely to share that one story. I never even thought of this being a career. I just thought I need to share and tell this story in the best manner possible. Yeah. as worthy of this hero, this sterling individual that saved so many lives on 9-11. And so I was you know, knee deep in it, focused to get it done after six years. And along the way, I met a fair amount of people, one of which helped me get it finalized and distributed. And he had a lot of experience making films and he liked work with me. He saw that I was a go-getter, organized. I followed through with my commitments and he said I was smart. Actually, he said I was smart because he's <laughs> He's a friend of mine from New England now. And so now he's a business partner myself of mine. And he asked me if I would want to be involved with his new project. He sent me the script and I just loved it. It's yeah. called Vault and it's about a heist from a vault that happened in 1975. $30 million was stolen from this vault in Providence, Rhode Island. Mm-hmm. And so to this day, it's the largest heist from a vault in U.S. history. And one of the twists that you find out pretty early on in the story is that 
This vault was not in a bank with paperwork and regulations, but rather it was in the basement of a fur showroom. In ah. fact, the fur showroom was really a front for the vault. And that's because this vault was where the New England mob would keep their cash, their jewels, yeah. guns, and all other kinds of crazy stuff. And it essentially was the bank of the mob. Yeah. And it's an active bank, back and forth, back and forth. And, and, you know, all day people were coming and going, making withdrawals and deposits in this vault. And so it's an amazing story because it obviously can't end up well for these guys, yeah. notwithstanding that they at least initially were successful. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. So fascinating. So yeah, so and the, the, I love the fact that I had no desire or plans to make another film, but I also love that now I'm involved with a major feature film. Chaz Bomateri, Don Johnson are in it, among other stars. Yeah. Cast is incredible. I was on set, you know, looking and learning about so many different things that are different from a documentary, mm -hmm. and and to be at a producer role on a major film that I think is going to be a special film and really well received and a huge commercial and artistic success i am so elated and it's like pinch me like this is so yeah, much fun. well and that's and that's the purpose right I mean, that's the goal right is to, to build a business that serves you and gives you opportunities to do you know wonderful exciting things uh, i think you know 100 percent achievement on on the goal of of getting to that point in uh you know professionally so the big question is are you going to do a third Possibly. Possibly. <laughs> I have some ideas. I have an idea for documentary. Yeah. Uh, there's a couple of opportunities to do features. It's amazing. All, all you need to do is make one film and people come out of the woodworks and want they want to be extras. They want to show you this. <laughs> and they think that I'm this big, successful, experienced filmmaker. And I'm still learning as I'm going as anyway. But yeah. it's amazing how people gravitate to that. And, yeah. uh, you know, I was at a couple of film festivals with my first film, Man in Red Bandana, and actors and actresses that you've heard of mm -hmm. were interested in talking to me because I had on my badge, it said filmmaker and I had a film in the in the festival because as an actor, actress, it is the single worst job you could have. You are perpetually auditioning and yeah. interviewing a new job. And even if you get one, you don't know how long it's going to last. And, and most likely you're going to have to interview for a new job five to 50 times a year. Yeah. And and unless you're like a Jennifer Lawrence or Bradley Cooper, it's very tough out there yeah. for actors and actresses. I can imagine. I can imagine. Matt, this was a pleasure. Uh, if people want to find out more about you, about the films, about the business, what's the best way to kind of get that and, you know, contact information? Sure. Well, MatthewWeiss.com is my personal website and my traffic ticket law firm website is 888redlight.com. And then, of course, maninredbandana.com is the first film. So any one of those will work. I will. I'll make sure all those links are in the show notes and stuff so people can get to those. Uh, it's been a pleasure. Thanks so much for taking some time. I really had a lot of fun on this. Me too. Thank you. You've been listening to Scaling Up Services with business coach Bruce Eckfeldt. To find a full list of podcast episodes, download the tools and worksheets, and access other great content, visit the website at scalingupservices.com. And don't forget to sign up for the free newsletter at scalingupservices.com slash newsletter. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.